remind you of where we have been to this point. We've, we've, we've been through the first um, two chapters so far, and seeing that Paul's main point is that the gospel, um, uh, the gospel is this. The gospel is that people are justified and adopted by God through faith in Christ alone. That the gospel is Jesus alone, not Jesus plus. Not Jesus plus works, not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus that there is nothing that you or I can do to add to our own salvation and our own justification. As I said, we've, we've been in the first two chapters so far, and if you'll remember, I said that there are six chapters in the book of Galatians, and they sort of break up evenly. The first two chapters are autobiography, and the last two chapters are what we might think of as ethics, and these middle two chapters that we're getting started with today are the ones where Paul gets a little less personal He's been using his story to sort of tell about Jesus and tell about the gospel. And so he turns away from himself now, and he turns actually to the story of God's people. And so Paul turns to the Bible and turns to what we might think of as, quote-unquote, more theological thinking and less personal thinking as he continues to, to describe and talk about and show what the gospel is. And so as he turns to Scripture, and we've got to remember that when Paul turns to Scripture, what is his Scripture? His Scripture is the Old Testament. Um, and as he turns to Scripture, as he turns to the Old Testament, he's going to show us how the gospel is there in the Old Testament. And that the work of God has always, in fact, been about the gospel of grace. And so we get started here. We're going to be in chapter 3, so you can go ahead and start moving there to chapter 3 this morning. I will say, I do think that Galatians chapter 3 is one of the harder passages in Scripture, especially in the, in the New Testament. I mean, there are some, there are some chapters in, in Numbers that are certainly boring and hard to get through, right? Because it's just a list of names and people and how many people were in a tribe. And we can have a whole conversation someday about why that's in Scripture, because it seems so unnecessary. But when I say that Galatians 3 is hard, I mean, Galatians is th is 3 is kind of hard to understand. As we get into it, we can feel as if we're in over our head. Uh, I, I think sometimes we've been, we've been taught to treat Scripture as if it's this sort of... of quick, feel-good, entertaining guide to helping me live my best life now sort of thing. But what Scripture's about is Scripture's about us coming to know and understand God, coming to know God better and deeper and more completely. And if that is what our goal is, then Galatians 3 is an awesome place to be because as we get into it, I think we're going to really see and really come to understand more about what God is, who God is, and what He is doing. Before we get started and before I read Scripture to you, I want to give you an idea for how us to sort of think about this. I've borrowed this from David Platt. He's the pastor at McLean Bible Church, um, and he's the former head of the International Mission Board. And Platt sort of talks about Galatians 3 like this. He says, think of Galatians 3 as a series of three mountains. And in order for you to climb the second and third mountain, you've got to climb the first. And in order for you to climb the third mountain, you've got to climb the second, first, and second. And so what these three mountains are is these three mountains are the covenant that's given to Abraham, the covenant that's given to Moses, and the covenant that is brought forward through Christ, the new covenant. And so as we read through 
that's going to be our organization. So I just wanted to give that to you before we read so that you can begin to see this mountainous terrain in front of us. We are in Galatians 3. We're going to start with the first verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you or by doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard, just like Abraham, who believed God and was credited to him for righteousness? You know then that those who have faith, these are sons, Abraham's sons. Now the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteousness will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I am using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to the seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effort, effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. So the law therefore contrary to God's so is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything, everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Christ, Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we come before you this morning, I just pray that your gospel would be stirred up in our hearts, that we would see how your Son, how Jesus, and how his covenant is the fulfillment of these covenants that had come before him. 
God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts can be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God, and our King. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so now that we've read it, do you see what I mean when I say it's tough? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I read, I read fairly well in public. You know, it's kind of part of my job. And even I was stumbling over that a little bit, right? I mean, this is, this is complicated stuff. Now, I think one of the things that we've got to do, and I don't know if y'all, how you might have it in your Bible, in the CSB translation, which is what we've got in the Pew Bibles, if you were to pull that out, what you would see is you would see all of these, these phrases and sentences that are in bold typeface. And in the CSB, when something's in a bold typeface, it means that that is Scripture that's quoting some other Scripture. And as we move our way through Galatians 3, we just see that it's over and over and over again, Paul is quoting Scripture, primarily, well, exclusively, the Old Testament. Various places in Old Testament. Some of it is Exodus, some of it is Genesis, some of it is Deuteronomy, some of it is Habakkuk. That's a word we don't say a lot in church, right? And so he's quoting all of this, and, and, and he's making this argument that's based in Scripture, showing the folks the truth of justification by grace through faith. And so he starts with his very first mountain, which is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. But since we're going to be talking about covenant, Let's define covenant real quick. Covenant is an agreement that two groups, that two parties or two individuals make together. And they make, they make promises to one another about what they're going to do. And along with that covenant, there often were um, uh, uh, promises of blessings and promises of curses. If you, if you fulfill the covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't fulfill the covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. And, and so it's important for us to, to remember that covenants don't have to be between God and his people. That's how most often we're used to that expression, but covenants can happen all of the time between two individuals. We see this most regularly in our lives these days through the covenant of marriage. You know, the, uh, the covenant of marriage. Two parties come together and they make promises to each other in front of God and in front of the community. To love, honor, cherish, in sickness and in health, in richer for poorer, till death do them part. That's a covenant. But the story of God and God's interaction with his people is a story of a series of covenants that God makes with his people. And so there are some covenants that precede the covenant with Abraham. There's, there's the, the Adamic covenant, the covenant that he makes with Adam after the fall. There's the Noetic covenant, the covenant that he makes with Noah after the flood. And these are, those are covenants that are sort of made to, to, to all of creation. But, but the Abrahamic covenant is the first covenant that God makes with just his people. And in the story of God's covenant with Abraham, we see that God's promise shows us the necessity of faith. God's promise shows us the necessity of faith. As Paul is getting started in Galatians chapter 3 here, he asks a series of six questions. 
six questions. In the first five verses, it's, this, he's, it's just this rapid fire, question after question after question. And the central question, the most important question, the question that is the sum of the other questions is the question that's found there in verse uh, 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? This is the central question. Have you received the Spirit by what you have done or have you received Spirit through faith? And so he takes us back to this first mountain, this mountain of the Abrahamic covenant, and, and, and it's important for us to remember what happens. So the Abrahamic covenant, God comes to Abraham. When Abraham is living in a foreign land, Abraham does not know God. God comes to him in the first um, part of Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, let's just remember that Abram and Abraham are the same person. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is what we talk about is the promise. This is the promise that God makes to Abraham, this covenant that he makes with Abraham. But see, notice what God does. God promises to bless Abraham, but Abraham has done nothing to deserve it. There's nothing here about how because Abraham was a righteous man, God saw him and he comes to him and he blesses him. That's not there. The very strong likelihood is, is that Abraham is a pagan. I mean, he's over in Mesopotamia. He's, he's probably gone to temples and worshipped all of those Mesopotamian gods. And yet God comes to him anyway. And he chooses Abraham. God chooses Abraham. Abraham doesn't choose God. God chooses Abraham. Let's also notice that Abraham doesn't make covenant with God. God makes covenant with Abraham. He extends his grace to Abraham, and he expresses it in this radical promise. You're going to have a child, and through that child, I will bless all of the people of the world. That's a, that's a pretty big promise, right? That's a pretty radical promise. Somebody came to you and said, you are going to have a kid, and that kid is going to bless every person on the planet. That's, that's a big deal. That's a big promise. That's a big, big promise. It's also kind of a, a crazy promise to make to a man who's pushing 100 and whose wife is also advanced in age. I, I was taught as a small child that you never discussed a woman's age publicly, so I will not discuss Sarah's age publicly. But she was advanced in years. But see, this is because the promise isn't about what Abraham and Sarah can do. In fact, notice what happens when they try and take it into their hands, when they try and make the promise happen on their own. When Sarah says, you're not going to have a kid by me, so God must mean for you to have a kid with somebody else. And they come along and they really mess up, Right? Because it's not about what Abraham and Sarah can do. The fulfillment of the promise isn't dependent on them. It's dependent on God alone. It's about God. It's about his grace. It's about his promise. It's not about them. See, through faith alone, God's people receive his blessing. Grace is not earned. 
Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we are told. He didn't do anything. He just believed something. See, we're constantly trying to do things, right, to make things better. We're constantly trying to fix things. Some of you have, may have more of an issue with that than others. I've got an issue with that. I need something to do. That's the, been the frustrating thing for me the last, the last three or four days, right, watching the situation in Eastern Europe, and I can't do anything to fix it. Is it persuasion? Sense and sensibility. Thank you. I get all my Jane Austen confused. I have, it is, but in Sense and Sensibility, there's a scene where, right, the, the young woman falls and the man comes in and he's covered and, 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 and he's drenched because it's been in the rain. And he's standing outside her door as the doctor is coming in. And what does he say? He says, give me an occupation or I shall run mad. Give me something to do. This is a joke between us. Give me an occupation or I shall run mad. Give me something to do. We are doers. As human beings, that's what we want. But here's the problem. We can't do anything to fix this problem. We can't do anything to fix the problem of our separation from God. We can't do anything to make ourselves draw closer to God. Righteousness was not credited to Abraham after he was circumcised, but rather before. And this is important in Paul's argument, right? Paul's listeners are going to know this is all about circumcision. Abraham's the first one to be circumcised. But the promise doesn't come to Abraham as a result of his circumcision. It comes to him before that. Abraham's faith, not his obedience, not his actions. Abraham's faith was the crucial point. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. Believe in God and it will be credited to you. And it's hard for us, right? It's hard for us because we say, that's it? That's all I have to do? I don't have to do anything? I just have to believe? Yeah, that's the point. There's this whole, there's this whole subgenre of memes that have de developed on the internet where like atheists will like make these memes about the gospel and Christians are like, yeah, no, that's the point. There was one recently where somebody said, hey, little Johnny, you see that man over there? That's the man that murdered you and your whole family. But after he murdered you, he found Jesus, and now he's in heaven. And it was like, this was supposed to be like a big gotcha on Christians. It's like, yep, nope, that's, that's how it works. It's great. You got it. But it's hard for us to accept that, right? It's hard for us to believe that. It's hard for us to, to believe that that's the case because we want to do something. But that's it. Believe in God, and it will be credited to you as righteousness. See, we become righteous through faith in Christ. And now this faith is expressed in radical obedience. Abraham is, the, uh, is, 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 is called. Abraham is justified by faith, and then it causes him to be live in a radical obedience by that faith. What does that look like for Abraham? It looks by him circum being circumcised. He's obeying because of his faith. It looks like him leaving the land of his fathers 
and following God out into the wilderness, out into the land of foreigners, out into a place where he is vulnerable because of his faith. It looks like Abraham taking his son Isaac, the one who had been promised, and walking up a mountain with a knife in his hand because God had called him to. Radical obedience, but it came from faith. See, God gave Abraham the promise by grace. And Abraham trusted the promise through faith, and that then led to this radical obedience. When When you trust God, when you do things that seem crazy to the world, it's not because you're trying to earn your salvation, but it's because you believe God. People who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, don't sit back and indulge in sin and the ways of the world just like everybody else because they believe God. See, we're not just saved by grace through faith, but we live by grace through faith. Because we believe God and his promises. Because we trust that what he wants is best for us. Because we trust that in radically following him, that's where we're going to find true freedom and true rest and real happiness and actual fulfillment. Not by chasing the things of this world, but by radically believing in God and trusting him. You can ask sometimes, what is, what is faith? See, see faith is, is, is belief with trust. I can look at all of the numbers. I think I've used this relatively recently with y'all. I can look at all of the numbers, and I can know that if I attach the bungee cord to my foot and go off the bridge, all of the numbers tell me that I'm going to be okay. That's belief. Faith is going over the edge and trusting that it's actually going to happen. That's what this is. Trust. Faith. Believing that when God tells us something it's real and it's true and that it's right. And so this is the first mountain. That God's, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. God's covenant with Moses does not contradict this covenant with Abraham. And so as we begin to tackle this next mountain of God's covenant with Moses, we've got to remember what we've learned by climbing this mountain. That grace alone, through faith alone. See, legalists, and in, in the case of the church in Galatia, the Judaizers, they, they often understand the importance of the Abrahamic covenant, but they give priority to the Mosaic covenant. See, instead of looking at the Mosaic covenant through the lens of the covenant with Abraham, they reverse the order and they look back at Abraham through the lens of the law. And in the process, they've misunderstood what the covenant with Moses, what the law is for. We've got to, to climb this mountain. We've got to understand the purpose of the law. And when we look through the lens of the Abrahamic covenant at the law, we see that it's not a bunch of rules about winning our salvation. Rather, we see that it's about God showing us the futility of the flesh. Right there in verse 10, Paul asks this question. He says, you know, he's asking, what can't the law do? And he tells us right there in verse 10, it can't bring life. 
Is not the point of the law to bring life? So then he asks again in verse 19, then why was the law given? The law was given to show us the futility and the weakness and the inability of our flesh, of our sinful nature. See, our flesh, our sinful nature says that I'm the authority in my life. I call the shots. I know what's best. I know right from wrong on my own. I do what I want. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's what the flesh tells us. It says that I'm in charge. And so what that does is it, is it means that we all disobey the law. Because the law demands perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. You know, we, we, we live in this thing that's like, well, you know, I only broke one or two rules. This isn't, this isn't best out of ten stuff. This isn't, there were ten rules and you only, you, you only broke one of them, so you get a 90%. There's no curve here. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And so in, in making it all or nothing, what the law shows us is the law shows us that we cannot be perfect. We cannot be perfect. The law exposes our sin. The law doesn't make sin. It doesn't make us sin. It doesn't define our sin. It simply exposes our sin. It reveals the fact that we are sinners. Because even without the law, we would still be sinners. There were sinners before the law was given to Moses. And so, because of that, because of what it reveals about us, because it reveals to us that we cannot be perfect, because it reveals to us that we are, in fact, sinners, Paul tells us, the law tells us, Scripture tells us that we stand cursed. Because, you see, the law was given to remind us, yes, that we are imperfect, and yes, that we are sinners, and that because of that, we are cursed. Because a perfect and holy God demands a perfect and holy people. Because God can't, by his very nature, accept anything less than perfection. To do so would impinge on his own perfection and his own holiness. And so, we stand condemned by our own actions before God. We have caused our own downfall because of our sin and our inability to achieve perfection. We can't ever get it right, and that's what the law shows us. We can't ever get it right. Does that, does that make you feel hopeless and helpless to know that you can't ever get it right? I mean, that, that can be a very disempowering feeling, right? Knowing I can never get it right. Brothers and sisters, that's the point. The point of the law is to show you that you can't do it. The point of the law is to show us that we can't do it and that we do need Him. And so that's our first mountain, the promise. That's our second mountain, the law. And our third mountain is God's covenant through Christ. And what we see, we're, now we're going to work backwards. And what we see first is we see that Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. 
We know that, we all know that from Matthew 5, right? From the Sermon on the Mount. I have come not to, what, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What does that mean? What does it mean when God, Jesus says that he's here to fulfill the law? Well, he fulfills the law by obeying it. By obeying it completely. We can't do it, and so he does it for us. Jesus alone, of any figure in Scripture, is able to claim righteousness of his own before God. But see, he not only only obeyed the law on our behalf, but he also endured the wrath of God on our behalf. So he, he obeys the law, but then he also, even though he has obeyed it completely and perfectly, he pays the punishment for those who haven't obeyed the law. Our failure to obey the law has consequences. If you decide to rip down Main Street at 98 miles an hour with an open container and shooting your six-gun out the windows, there are going to be consequences for that, right? Not obeying the law has consequences. And those consequences for us when we fail to obey God's law is His wrath, is the curse. And so Jesus, who has perfectly perfectly obeyed the law, says, I will take that curse on for you. And so the law is fulfilled. It's doubly fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Jesus obeying every aspect of it and in them, and then in him paying the price for not obedience, for disobedience. And so in both of these things, in obeying the law perfectly and in paying the price for our disobedience, Jesus fulfills the law. So the law of Moses has been fulfilled. And now we look back on that first mountain, the promise of Abraham. And see, in the cross and in Jesus' work on the cross, he doesn't just fulfill the law, but he also fulfills the promise God makes to Abraham. Because Jesus is of Abraham's line. He is the seed. I think Paul makes such an interesting point when he says, he says, it's, it says seed, it doesn't say seeds. Seed, singular. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. We talk about him being the son of David, right? We talk about him being of David's line, and that's important, and his kinghood, and all, all of that sort of stuff is important, absolutely. But we let us not forget that Jesus is a son of Abraham. He is Abraham's seed. And so in his cross, and as he takes on the wrath of God, as he offers his perfect sinless life up as sacrifice, he becomes the blessing to the whole world. He opens up God's covenant so that you and I can participate in it. Because I don't know, and I don't know everybody's background and everybody's genealogy, but I know, at least for myself, I am ethnically not Jewish. I am ethnically not a descendant of Abraham. And yet, because of what Christ has done on the cross, I can participate. Because of what Christ has done for the cross, I am a son of Abraham. Because Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. 
We sing these songs to our kids and as kids, but there's, there's huge truth in them. Through Christ, we become God's people. We come to God. And the only way that we can come to God is through Christ and Christ alone. Abraham and Moses and every other saved person in the Old Testament had faith that was pointing to Christ. They were were saved by Christ. They may not have realized all the details of what God was going to do, but their faith was still in the gospel, the good news of God's grace. By grace alone, God gives salvation to us. Paul points out to the Galatians that they have done nothing to merit God's salvation. They did nothing to become Abraham's children, and we have done nothing to merit God's salvation. It is God's grace that saves us, just as it was God's grace that saved Paul on the road to Damascus. Just as it was God's grace that reconciled Peter after his denial. God's grace is stunning. God's grace, the gospel, the good news, whatever we want to call it. You know, this is not an ethical improvement program. It's not a self-help program. It's not about rule keeping and checking off boxes. It's not even about being nice to others, about getting our relationships fixed and having a successful life. The gospel of God is about salvation by grace, by grace alone. And so how do we receive this grace? We receive this grace the same way that Abraham did, through faith alone. Abraham received God's grace because God chose him, and he believed. The blessings of the new covenant are even greater than the blessings of the old covenant. Because through the new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit changes everything. Have you ever stopped to consider that you have the actual living presence of Jesus Christ in your life? Let's go back to that question that he asks in verse 2. Do you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? You cannot do it on your own. You cannot make it on your own. You must have. You must have Christ. And faith that Christ alone can save you. That not your works, not your goodness, not your niceness, not the fact that you stopped that one time on the highway and helped that lady change her tire. And I'm glad you did that. It's important to do that. But that doesn't save you. What saves you is Christ and the faith to believe that Christ alone saves you. Our hymn of invitation this morning is Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. I would encourage you as we sing to to reflect on God's grace 
God's mercy. And if you wish to respond in faith to that grace, this is an opportunity to do so. Let's praise God one more time.